Scripture reading is going to be from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. And this, uh, this passage is not, it's not your typical historical narrative that we read where, you know, the disciples go somewhere and they have conversations with people. This is a vision that God gives to the prophet Isaiah. And, and while it may not be something that you and I can readily identify with, I would encourage you, as much as you're able to, to try to put yourself in Isaiah's place. Um, for the purposes of, of trying to, to think through how might you have felt, how, how might you have responded if you were exposed to the things that Isaiah is, is seeing and experiencing right here in this, in this vision. So, so listen now to God's word from Isaiah 6, 1 through, 1 through 10. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And they called to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having taken in his hand a burning coal with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Be ever hearing, but not understanding. Be ever seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. This is God's Word. As I've been thinking about our, our little series of messages for this summer, I've been reminded of, of something that um, one of my seminary professors, Richard Pratt, would say. He had a, a number of things that he would say that were, were little, they weren't slogans really, but they were, they were things that he would say and he didn't encourage us to, rem- to memorize them necessarily, but for some reason we, we just tended to memorize them. Um, but one of the things that he would say was something like this. He would say, any time that you reveal something, you also conceal something. Or another way that he would say it, which is very similar, is he would say, any time that you emphasize something, then, then by definition, you're also de-emphasizing something else. And so here, here would be an example of it. If I, 
if I tell you about this little lectern here and I emphasize to you the fact of, of how small it is, well, by drawing your attention to the size of it, I am, I am almost by default de-emphasizing the fact that it's made of wood. You see what I mean? If, if I draw your attention to one thing, then, then in a sense I'm drawing your attention away from something else that would also be equally true. Well, in the last 15 to 20 years, I, I believe, I, my observation in the church has been that there has been kind of a, a return to emphasizing the centrality of the gospel in the Christian church. And I think that's a very good thing. We have, we have been emphasizing the fact that, that God has loved us, and he has so loved us that he has sent his son into the world to live for us, to die for us. He's atoned for our sin, and that we are new as a result of that. We have become new creatures, those of us who put our faith in Jesus. We are, we are now children of the living God. We are no longer enemies. We're no longer condemned in our sin, but we are welcomed into his family as sons and daughters. One of the things that we we and by, by the way, I hope that we never de-emphasize this. Okay, I, I'm I'm not setting this up to say, and I think we've made a mistake. No, not not by any means. But one of the things that I've I've seen, and I've talked to some other people about this, and I think by and large other people are are agreeing that this is the case, is that we we tend to emphasize that God has come to us. That and, and Brady said this so well at the beginning of the service when he said, you know, our God in many ways is unapproachable because of his holiness. And so because of his great love for us, while we could not approach him, he has initiated and approached us. So we talk about Jesus being God in the flesh, having come down from heaven and he has come to us to be identified and associated with us so that he could be our savior. And that's a true truth, something we should not de-emphasize. But here's what's interesting. Our passage this morning, and there's some other passages of scriptures as well, that give somewhat, they, they approach it from a little bit of a different vantage point. Whereas we often talk about God coming to us, in this passage, Isaiah is brought into the presence of God. This is not God coming down to the human. This is the human approaching the throne of God. It's interesting to me that in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul talks about something similar. It's not, it's not a vision like this, but it's similar in the sense of, of approaching God. He says, in light of God's great for, love for us in Christ, he says, let us then approach the throne of God with confidence that we might find grace and receive mercy to help us in our time of need. So, so there is this other theme in the scripture that talks about not only that God has come to us, but it now says, so, so now we are also called to approach him. And in order to approach him, or, or when we do approach him, what we're going to find is we're going to learn new things about him. And I think we will be in awe of him more and more. And so that's what's happening in this passage here. Isaiah is brought into the presence of God. And as he is in the presence of God, we will see him be overcome by the holiness of God. 
we will see him be emptied by the holiness of God. He will then be healed by the holiness of God. And then finally, he will be changed by the holiness of God. And my prayer for us this morning is that that we will be overcome, emptied, healed, and changed by the holiness of God as well. And so let's start with with the first point, which is this idea that he was overcome by God's holiness. One of the first things we see in this vision, it's in verse 3, is that there are heavenly beings in this heavenly temple that are calling out to each other. They're actually singing to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Perhaps some of you already know this, but some of you may not know this. In the Hebrew language, which is the original language that the Old Testament was written in, repetition was was used for superlative. It was used for emphasis or for magnification. So, so where we might say that God is extremely holy, because in, in the English language we use a lot of adjectives. We put adjectives on top of adjectives. And so we might say, God is extremely holy. Or we might say, God is more holy than any of us can fathom. The ancient Hebrew people would simply say, God is holy, holy, holy. It's, it's kind of, you know, pressing it in on us so that we would feel the magnitude of what, of what is being said. The word holy in Hebrew is the word kadosh. And kadosh literally means to cut. And it's not cut in the sense of being injured, but it's, it's cut in the sense of being carved out, being set apart. God's holiness means that there is none other like him that he is infinitely above, he is infinitely beyond, and he is infinitely other. And his holiness, we're not just talking about his holiness here, because his holiness has implications for other attributes of God as well. For example, God, when we say that God is wise, well, when you, when you take his holiness and you put it on top of his wisdom, then what we're saying is that God is not just wise, But his wisdom is above any other wisdom. Or when we say that God is powerful, God's power, he's not just powerful, his power is infinitely greater than any other power that you and I can think of. Or when we say that God is righteous, we're not just saying that he's righteous, we're saying that his righteousness is infinitely above any other standard of righteousness in all the world. He is holy, holy, holy. I'm intrigued by R.C. Sproul's comment about God's holiness. I included it. There are a couple of quotes in the beginning of your worship guide. I'm not going to read them for you. I'll trust that you can read them yourself. But um, but I almost felt obliged to to include some quotations from R.C. Sproul this morning because I don't know about you, some of you, some of you don't even know who R.C. Sproul is. R.C. Sproul is, is, has been a leader in the church for, for most of our lifetimes. He, he, he went home to be with the Lord just in the last year. Um, but, but for many of the, of the people that are my age and older, for those of you who are younger, 
Uh, for many of us here in this room that are my age and older, a ton of what we understand about the, the character and the nature of God, we have learned through through either listening to or reading books by by this guy R.C. Sproul. Um, and so, but 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 he talks about in in one of the quotes that I included this idea that God's holiness is both attractive and something that that kind of repels us at the same time. It is it is simultaneously appealing to us and yet something that we hide from. I see it in in a couple of different places in Scripture. One of the places that that we see it in Scripture is when the Israelites are at the foot of Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus where where God he speaks to the Israelites from the top of Mount Sinai and his voice thunders to them. And they are drawn toward the holiness of God. They're drawn to it. They're, they're like, wow, this God is amazing. He is so powerful. And so they're, they're attracted to it. And yet after he speaks to them, their response essentially is fear. And they say to Moses, okay, um, from now on, we don't want God to speak directly to us anymore. We want him to speak to you and then you can speak to us, but we don't want to deal directly with him anymore. So they were, they were both attracted to him and yet didn't really want to be that close to him anymore. We see it similarly in, in an encounter that the disciples have with Jesus where, where the, 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 the disciples are, are on a boat. Jesus is on the boat as well, but Jesus is asleep on the boat. And this storm comes up, and the boat's being thrown around by the wind and the waves, and the disciples become afraid. And so they, they wake Jesus, saying, can you do something? You know, we're, we're about to die here. Can you do something? They're, they're attracted to Jesus. They're drawn in to his power. And so Jesus then speaks to the weather, and the wind and the waves stop. And you know what the first response of the disciples is at that point? Now they're no longer afraid of the wind and the waves. Now they're afraid of Jesus. Because what they say is, who is this who speaks to the weather and the weather obeys him? So they're both drawn to him and yet they're afraid. They draw back from him. And I think... I think that's what Dr. Sproul is saying, is that the holiness of God is like that. That we're both drawn to it, and yet we we withdraw from it. So what's the proper response to the holiness of God? Well, I would suggest that the proper response to the holiness of God is surrender. Smoke has filled the temple of God. The pillars and the doorposts of heaven are shaken. And Isaiah is overcome by the holiness of God. And he falls on his face. And in verse 5 he says, Woe is me. I am lost. I am undone. Woe is is the language of, of being under a curse. He's saying, I'm in trouble. I'm in a situation here where I don't know how to handle myself. I don't know how to respond to this. I know that I feel incredibly weak. I feel incredibly unworthy. And he says, I cannot rescue myself from this situation. 
How do you know when you are overcome by the holiness of God? How would you recognize it if it were the case? Well, I would, I would suggest this. I would say that you know that you're beginning to be overcome by the holiness of God when you start to realize that you can no longer ignore Him. You know, I, I don't know you, you know, as, as, as the kids say, I don't know your life. But I do know this. I know that, that for a lot of us, we, we hear God. You know, we, we hear the Bible. We, we know about the Bible. Or we come to church and we hear God's word read. Or we hear somebody get up and, and give, a, give a sermon from the Bible. And we, and we listen to it and we say, hmm, that's interesting. So what are we doing with the rest of our day? Right? You know, we, we, we say, all right, well, I'll, I'll try to pay attention and hopefully the guy won't be too boring and, you know, I'll, I'll listen and I'll try to understand what they're saying. But then when it's over, we're, we're ready to move on to the next thing. So what's for lunch? You know, or, or, or what do we, what else are we going to do this week? I think that's a form of kind of ignoring. It's saying, okay, God, I know you're there, but, but, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll pay attention to you for a little while, but, but then I'm going to shift my attention and I'm going to live the rest of my life or the rest of my week or the rest of my day as if that really didn't happen. And when you start to become overcome by the holiness of God, it becomes harder and harder to do that. It becomes harder and harder to put God over here on the side and just pretend that he doesn't apply to the rest of life. Another way that I think you'll recognize that that you're, you're starting to be overcome by the holiness of God is when you find yourself arguing with him less and less. You know, we hear, we hear God say certain things about what is true or about what is right. And there's a part of us that says, well, you know, I know you're God, but, but trust me on this. I, I, I know some things and, and I just don't think, I just don't think that's accurate. Or I just don't think that's going to work in my life. I mean, God, that might have been good, you know, 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago, however long it was ago. But, but I'm not sure, God, you really understand life today. Or I'm not sure you understand life in my family or in my situation or in my circumstance. And so we, we debate with God and we argue with God and we, we, we dismiss some of the things that God says because we think we know better than God. You are starting to be overcome by the holiness of God when you find it harder and harder to argue with him and you find yourself more and more saying, you know what, God, you're God and I'm not. And I will yield to what you say. I will believe it because you say it's true. Or another another way that you'll recognize that, that you're being overcome by the holiness of God is when when you stop fighting him. And by fighting him, I don't mean with fists. What I mean is, for, for some of us, I think we, we, we know that God is there. It's not really a question of believing in him. We, we, we believe in him. We, we know he's there. We know he's real. We just don't really want to deal with him. We, we want to be in charge of our own thing. We want, we want to call the shots on our own. We have our own plan. We're, we're happy if God would come along and bless our plan. You know, we say, look, God, I'm going to give you this big agenda here. And if you want to bless what I'm doing, that would be great. I'd be happy for you to be involved in my life in that capacity. But when God's word starts to, you know, we're start, when we start to get the sense of, 
I know I want to do this. I wish people would just leave me alone. I wish God would just let me be. But we know deep down that he's not letting us be. That he's not blessing what we're doing. And so we're just resisting. We're just fighting. I think when we start to to be overcome by the holiness of God, we find ourselves fighting and resisting less and less. That's what surrender is. Which brings us to the next point. Isaiah is emptied by the holiness of God. Isaiah is overcome by God's holiness and he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I represent a people of unclean lips and I am in the presence of the King, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of glory. There are two things going on here. First, Isaiah is a prophet. In other words, Isaiah didn't just become a prophet right here in this. I know that in some of your English Bibles, there's a heading above chapter 6 that says Isaiah's commissioning. But I don't don't think that's that's actually accurate. He's commissioned in the sense that he's going to get to a place where he says, here I am, send me, and God's going to say, go preach to these people. But Isaiah has been a prophet before chapter 6. He was a chat, he was a prophet in verses, in chapters one through five as well. So, so as a prophet, Isaiah is a preacher. He's a preacher of God's word. I know we tend to think of prophets as being people who tell the future or something like that. That's not really what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who declares the word of God. And in, the, in his case, many Old Testament prophets, they declared the word of God before we had this. Part of this was in place. You, know, you, you probably had the first five books of the Bible. But a lot of the Old Testament is, is the prophets. It's written by the prophets. And so they didn't, the people of God didn't have the prophets until the prophets spoke. So God has, has revealed his word to them and they are declaring the word of God on behalf of God to his people. And in some cases, they do predict the future. They say, look, this is going to happen if you don't repent. Or if you keep doing what you're doing, then, then this is what God is going to do in response to your actions. And so in that sense, there's a little bit of a predictive component to it. But primarily, prophets are not predictors. Prophets are declarers of the word of God. They're preachers. And so think about this. And, and, and Pastor Bruce has pointed this out before as well. That when Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips... What he is saying is, I'm, I'm a preacher. My gift, if you will, is the gift of gab. Right? The lips, the mouth of a preacher is kind of like the arm to the pitcher. Or to, or, or of the hands to the surgeon. This is my most, my most valuable component. This is, when he's saying, I am a man of unclean lips. What he's saying is my strength in the presence of God's holiness is actually weak. Isaiah is not only confessing his sin when he's confronted with the holiness of God, he's also confessing his strength. He's repenting of his strength. He's repenting of his own righteousness. The other thing he's doing that I find interesting is he's repenting 
not only of his strength, of his self-righteousness, he's repenting of his pedigree. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, Isaiah is an Israelite. And in, and in most cases, in, in a time like this, being an Israelite was something that looked pretty good on your spiritual resume. Remember in the New Testament, there was a time when Jesus is interacting with some Pharisees, some Israelites, these Jewish religious leaders, and and they're, they're persecuting Jesus. They're speaking against him, and Jesus basically says to them, well, you know, when you talk to me like that, you're basically revealing that you are of your father, the devil. I know that didn't go over very well. That's not exactly seeker-sensitive, you know, ministry. But he's saying, look, you, you think you know what is true, but you don't. And he, and, he, and he literally says, when you say things like that, you're revealing that you are of your father, the devil. Well, what's their response to Jesus? They didn't just say, oh, yeah, well, you're, you're hard. They didn't, they didn't lay into him. They began to defend themselves. And here's how they defended themselves. They said, no, no, no. Abraham's our father. We're descendants of Abraham. We're his children. What were they saying? They're saying, we're Israelites. How dare you talk to us like that? We are children of God. We are descendants of Abraham. We are Israelites. To be an Israelite is something that looked good on a spiritual resume. But Isaiah is repenting of his Israeliteness because he says, not only am I a man of unclean lips, not only am I a prophet whose mouth is unclean, I am of a people of unclean lips. He's repenting of even being an Israelite. Here's a question. What makes you feel acceptable? What makes you feel worthy? We all have things that we, that we, that we think this way about. We all have things that make us feel like we're okay in the social structure. You know, maybe you look around in, in your sphere of influence or the people that you relate to and you say, well, you know what? I got a couple things going for me. I remember when I was in high school, I used to, I I mean, you you might laugh at this, but I actually took a little inventory when I was in high school of the things that made me think I was okay. I was on the lacrosse team. I had a car. Or I had a girlfriend. You know, I I would would look at these things and I would say, you know, this is pretty good being me. If I can get rid of this nose, I'll I'll be great. But you know, there, there are just things that we, that we line up and we do it in adulthood too. We, we, we line up these things where we say, you know, I have these things going for me and because of this, I feel like I'm alright. Maybe it's, maybe it's your education. Maybe it's your job or your career success. Maybe it's financial security. Maybe it's your marital status or your non-marital status. Maybe it's, it's raising kids who are, who are turning out the right way. Maybe it's having the right house or living in the right neighborhood. Whatever it is. I'm not trying to give you a list of exhaustive things. But we all have them. Whatever it is for you, it's your sense of identity. It's, it's, it's where you put your hope. I think when, when most people are confronted with the holiness of God... They tend to say something like this internally. They say, well, you know, I, I probably need to step up my game. You know, I see who God is. I know what he's like. I know he's holy. And, I, and, and so in, in contrast to his holiness, we look at ourselves and we say, you know, I probably need to step it up a little bit. I, I probably need to start making better decisions. 
I probably need to start getting my priorities straight. I probably ought to start reading the Bible more. I probably ought to start praying more or going to church more. I need to step it up. But you know what the truth is? And Isaiah shows us this. When you are truly understanding the holiness of God, you don't say, I need to step up my game. You say, I have no game. There is nothing that I can bring into the presence of God that will give me standing with Him. That will make Him look at me and say, well, now that's somebody to be proud of, or that's somebody to be respected. No. And that's what Isaiah sees. Isaiah is confronted with the holy, holy, holiness of God. And he says, woe is me. I am ruined. I have nothing to bring. And so he is emptied before God by the holiness of God. And the good news is that if you get to that place where you are not only overcome by the holiness of God, but you are emptied by the holiness of God, the good news is you can be healed. Because that's the place where healing happens. In verse 6, one of the heavenly beings takes a coal from the altar, and with it he touches Isaiah's lips, and he says, This has touched your lips, and therefore your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now think about what the altar is for. Isaiah knew what the altar was for. It was for sacrifices to atone for sin. The, the priest would bring sacrifices and, and offer them on the altar to atone for, to pay for the sins of the people. My guess is that not only did Isaiah understand this about the altar, but Isaiah had very likely seen the temple in Jerusalem, the physical temple. And so he, he had experienced at some level the temple of God and the altar. But on this day... He experienced the altar in a way that he had never experienced it before. Because on this day, he saw the holiness of God in a way that he had never understood it before. I want to ask uh, Ruth if, if she could put this, this diagram on the, on the screen here. You've, many of you have seen this before. Pastor Bruce has used this before. But, but what this diagram is showing is if you look at the top... The, the top um, radius there that says growing awareness of God's holiness. By the way, that is not God's holiness. God's holiness is not changing, okay? He is holy. He has always been holy, and he will always be holy, and he's not becoming more holy or less holy. So this doesn't represent his holiness in actuality. It represents our understanding of God's holiness. And then the, the lower radius represents our growing understanding and awareness of our own sinfulness. It's not, it's not that we become more sinful. It's just that we understand it more deeply. And it's, and it's this idea, frankly, that I think made Paul say, remember where, where Paul is, is writing, um, I think it's in, in, into the Galatians where he says, now some of you are hearing what I'm saying about the grace of God and you're saying, well, if I get more sinful, then God's grace gets bigger, right? Well, if that's the case, well, then let's sin more because the more we sin, the bigger God's grace is. And then he says, 
not so fast. That's not my point. I think the point that Paul was making when when he was building this argument that I have not read for you here, he was making the point that this diagram is making, and that is the bigger your understanding of, of God's holiness and the deeper your understanding of your sinfulness, the bigger the cross becomes. Do you see that? Why is this important? Here's why it's important. And, and, and to, to help you understand this, I'm going to kind of paraphrase a, a preacher named David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He would, he would often, in order to, to emphasize this, this point, he would ask people, he would say, let, let, let me give you a, a situation where let's say you have a bunch of bills, a bunch of debts, okay? And someone comes along and pays one of your debts for you, pays one of your bills for you. How grateful will you be? Well, most people responded by saying something like this. It depends. It depends on how big the bill was. It depends on how big the debt was, right? I mean, if somebody pays your BG&E bill, you'll be grateful. But if somebody pays off your entire mortgage, you'd probably be grateful at a little different level, right? You know, BG&E bill might be 250 to $500, depending on how much you, you know, run the air conditioning, right? But a mortgage could be anywhere from $100,000 to $900,000. I mean, it could, it could, you know, who knows? And so his point was, the bigger the debt that is paid for you, the more grateful we become, Right? Knowing how big the debt is that's been paid for you results in greater gratitude. That's what you see. That's what this is illustrating. That if you think God's holiness is only a little bit, and you think your sin is only a little bit, well, then the cross is pretty small for you. So, are you grateful? Uh, yeah, sure, sure, of course. But, but if the grace of God is just some undefined quantity to you, well then it's hard, it's hard to really feel grateful. But Isaiah, in a way that he has never understood before, has now come in contact with the holy, holy, holiness of God. And he now knows that the difference between God's holiness minus his sinfulness is huge. So huge that he sees it and he responds with, I am in trouble. And so when, when the, the seraph comes to him and says, this coal that I have taken from the altar, which is where sin is atoned for, and has touched your lips with it, what do you think Isaiah's gratitude level is? It's way bigger than it ever has been before. Because his understanding of God's grace has now been magnified by his understanding of God's holiness. The more you understand the cost of the debt that's been paid for you, the greater your gratitude will be. When I was in my 20s, I was grateful to my parents for raising me. But I have now been married for almost 28 years. 
and I have three kids. They are 22, 20, and 18. And I am getting close to the time when I am going to schedule a formal sit-down conversation with my parents so that I can thank them for their marriage and for raising us kids. Because my understanding today of how hard it is to stay married to the same person and raise children together and manage finances together and live life together, my understanding of how difficult that is is so much bigger today than it was when I was 22. Meaning, my gratitude, my appreciation for what they have done for me is so much bigger than it was then. Does that make sense? You'll never understand what it is that God has loved you, that he has forgiven you, until you are overcome, emptied, and healed by the holiness of God. Very quickly, the the last point is that Isaiah was changed by the holiness of God as well. In verse 8, the Lord says, essentially, I need a prophet. I need a prophet who will preach to Israel that they will be ever hearing but never understanding, that they will be ever seeing but never perceiving. They'll always be listening, but they'll never be believing. I need someone who will go preach in that context. And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Do you see that that because Isaiah has been overcome by the holiness of God and emptied by the holiness of God and healed by by the holiness of God, his agenda has been totally changed. His, his purpose, his mission has been completely overhauled such that he is now able to say, from this point forward, I will live for and I will serve the Lord. And do you hear what his, what his living for and his serving is going to be? Maybe you don't appreciate this if you're not a preacher, but I can tell you this is going to be a miserable existence. He is given, he's being given a preaching assignment where he's going to be preaching now in an, for an indefinite period of time to people who will always be hearing what he's saying but never believing what he's saying. They will always be showing up to hear the message, but they will always be then turning around and going out as if what was said had never been said. Always listening, never believing. Always hearing, never changing. Never following never embracing the message. I truly don't know anyone who would voluntarily sign up for that kind of earthly failure. Who would do this? Only someone who was no longer afraid to fail. Only someone who no longer needed to succeed in order to have an identity. Only someone who doesn't need earthly success to define them because they already have a more profound security. That they have been forgiven and accepted 
by the God of the universe. The God whose holiness shakes the heavens. From whom the angels hide their faces. He loves you. In Christ, He accepts you. The question is, what else do you need? What do you lack? All we need is Him. Therefore, can we not say along with Isaiah, therefore, I will live for Him. I will serve Him. May we be overcome by the holiness of God. May we be emptied by the holiness of God. May we be healed. And may we be changed by the holiness of God. Let us pray. Father, we we thank you for the way that you love us. For for those of us who have been attending this church for any length of time, we know that you have pursued us. That you have come down, you sent your son to live for us and to die for us. And and in him through his atoning death, we have forgiveness. We have new life. We have adoption as sons and daughters into your family. Father, we pray that you would help us now to turn and see you for who you are, that we might be gripped by your holiness. We don't want to hear your word and then wonder what's for lunch. We don't want to hear your voice and then try to figure out how to live the rest of the week as if we really didn't hear it or as if it really doesn't matter. Lord, overcome us by your holiness that we might be emptied so that you would heal us, cleanse us, and change us that we might live for you. That we would trust you in every area of our life and seek to honor you appropriately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.